This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Former Ontario PC leader Patrick Brown has sent a notice of libel to CTV News. What does this mean? Uh, let's bring in Jordan Donich, criminal lawyer, a Donich, a Donich Law, and is with us now. Jordan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Glad to be back. Thanks. So, notice of libel, what does this all mean? Does he have a case? Well, this is Patrick Brown's way of saying, look, um, what has happened here isn't right. What has been said is not true, and I'm suffering damages, okay? So it's basically his way of advancing litigation uh, against uh, the defendants, which in this case are several media outlets and journalists, I believe. Um, th- that, that is his remedy if, in the event, these allegations are false. So uh, w- what kind of case does he have? How, what's his chance of success? So, yeah. Interesting topic, because our first question is going to, 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 to ask, who is he suing and why, right? So he can sue a couple people, right? If someone utters claims against you that are false or goes online or does something on social media, um, you can obviously sue the person making the comments directly, or in this case, he's suing the actual press. Um, and there's, there's, there's a test for this to determine if, in fact, there is a cause of action. Um, what ultimately it's going to come down to, though, is if, in fact, these allegations or these comments are untrue. Can you prove truth or untruth? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you do that? Right. So this is where it's going to get very complicated because the, the press is going to say, well, look, we have these individuals. Uh, they came here. They reported this, uh, the, these allegations. We have you know, an obligation. It's in the public interest to report this. Um, we, we did our due diligence. Uh, and therefore, we have a defense. And what he's going to say is, well, no, um, you didn't do your job properly. You didn't do your fact-checking. This isn't proper journalism. It has violated standards. And therefore, you don't have a defense. And now my career is ruined. Now, I can, I, when I was at the peak of my career, and I'm entitled to damages. That's how it's going to play out. Uh, what about the fact, uh, Jordan, that the story changed when it was when the original story aired? It, you know, it was somebody who was uh, allegedly applying alcohol to someone who was underage. Uh, obviously, that fact changed after the story was presented. Uh, CTV has certainly included that in their reporting, but but you know keeps going with the story so how does that change the scenario going from uh, an underage person to a person who's of legal age so the scenario the fact that they're underage and over so there's two is two parts of this question the first is the age okay well the age can have a big difference to determine if in fact um it's a minor right or, or not obviously if it's a minor and an allegation of sexual misconduct more serious but it's not just that it's the fact that the story changed as well right we have to ask well, why, why did it change? Was it not investigated properly? Did the complainant remember differently? So there's that other issue as well. Why is there a shifting terrain uh, with the story um, if everybody had done their fact-checking from the beginning? And we have to remember what the purpose behind all of this is, right? The purpose um, between having the press and having privacy is balancing all this, right? The rights from free expression, as we can all... We all have under our charter and the rights of privacy of each of us and protection from from destruction, which in, is, is which has happened in this case to Patrick Brown. Um, that's going to be what is that issue here. 
What is or was CTV's responsibility once the the story, the facts of the story did change and this person, it was revealed this person was of age? Right. So I, I think uh, their first responsibility was probably, and which we've seen slowly develop here, to correct, okay, any reporting. Uh, and, there, and if that is the case, they're doing it to protect themselves because if they withheld that, then you have an even stronger argument, right, of perhaps uh, journalistic uh, standards not being upheld. Um, but what's interesting is the media actually has a special defense for this very type of scenario, and we can talk about that. Um, and it's the defense of responsible communication, right? And this defends journalists, it defends uh, the media organizations, and, and it has two kind of um, elements to it, okay? One is what they're reporting has to be of public interest, right? Now, I think we can all agree something like this, you know, uh, of an elected official of, in today's climate is probably of public interest, okay? It's something to report. Then the second step um, of this defense is the, the defendant must show that he or she acted responsibly and that he or she showed diligence, right, in attempting to verify the alleged defamatory comments. So that's where I think um, there's going to be the, the issue of litigation in this case. Uh, is this story still valid to CTV once those facts have changed? Um, why not just drop it at that point? How do you decide what is important and what is he said, she said? Well, it's strategic, right, at that point. Now it's not, right, just about uh, reporting the story. Like, you can't report I think, in isolation, right? Especially if it's not entirely accurate. You're actually then giving a stronger argument to Patrick Brown and increasing your liability, right? And they don't want to get sued. And if they know they're going to get sued, they want to make sure they protect themselves. Uh, So that's why I think all eyes are going to be on the development of this uh, to not only ensure that that it's accurately reported, but to protect the liability of uh, CTV and the journalists. Uh, because at the end of the day, right, the defense they have of responsible communication, uh, and I know we're getting technical here, does grant journalists uh, journalists uh, um, uh, some protection in the event they're wrong. And we all know this, right? There's deadlines. Information comes in quick. We're, journalists are required to report. However, um, it's not entire immunity. And that's what Patrick Brown's getting at. Does Patrick Brown have to prove the story isn't true? And how do you do that? When so, it's when it's one person against another. Well, it's like any other case, Scott. It's like a sex assault case, an actual criminal case. Mm-hmm. It's one person says one thing, the other person says another thing, and there's no witnesses, and it's behind closed doors, right? That's the issue here. But we're in a civil context, right? Not criminal. Mm-hmm. So it just it, what it means is that is the threshold is actually much lower, fifty one percent balance right. of probabilities, right? Not beyond a reasonable doubt in the criminal context. So the the thing is though. The reason why uh, these don't get litigated very often, they do sometimes, there have been a few cases that have made it to the Supreme Court, um, is because they settle. And that's possibly what, what could happen here. Hmm. Uh, in your mind, I, I guess we don't know because we, we don't know all the facts here, but is there an assault here because there's no charge? So again, complicated, right? So if, for example, Patrick Brown was charged with sex assault or assault, right? Any, there would likely be no, he wouldn't be suing them right now, right? Because there's this added layer of verification, right? Mm-hmm. right? So 
a, a lawsuit for defamation or slander, whatever it may be, um, would be more vexatious and meritless, right? But because we have nothing else but words, right, and there's so much damage done to him, what if, for just hypothetically, what if uh, the, the, um, there is some truth to what he's saying? Why should he have his life ruined, right? What's his remedy, right, mm-hmm. if there is some truth to it? And that's why we have a system. And that's why there's civil court. And that's why he's suing. Where do you think this is going? How do you think this will end up? So uh, I, I think it'll depend on whether he's elected or not. Mm. Um, and the reason I Because that, that changes is, the outcome. Well, it changes damages, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's how I see it, right? If he's literally done after this forever, right, for the rest of his life, can never, can never run for office, can never get a job because of this scandal— or these allegations, true or not, he would be. If I were him, it would be, he would be more likely to continue with this because this is his only chance for salvation. If, however, um, as we saw with Donald Trump, who had a whole bunch of, uh, I think, much worse sexual misconduct uh, material uh, that was brought out during the election, if you recall, he got elected. I mean, and I haven't heard of any civil actions by him. And the reason is probably because there's no damages. He's still president. Hmm. What did you, it did nothing to him, right? That, and that's the reason. In your opinion, how is CTB handling this? How did they handle this? It's scary, right? And this is the problem when you're on the front line reporting, right, these things. Um, the, I, I mean, I, I think they're trying to balance everything, right? They're trying to do their, do their job and um, uphold the public interest in reporting. They're trying to be accurate. As best they can, they're trying to correct uh, perhaps inconsistencies that are coming up, and they're also trying to protect themselves from liabilities. We have all those shifting pieces, and um, they're going to have to continue to work at that um, as this process unfolds. Uh, do you think we will ever find out what happens with all of this, or do you think this will all be settled behind closed doors? So that will come down to Patrick Brown whether he pushes this forward. Right. And then and I think whether he does that will depend on the next few months. Um, so that, that's, I think, how we will know. Um, and of course, if there's an offer, right, if there's, if there's money on the table for him and there's some some wrong potentially done, um, that's an incentive as well. Right. Not to continue. But at the end of the day, if nobody budges and Patrick Brown believes and says these are false and I'm innocent, um, he has no choice but to take this to trial. And that would be the only time we actually have a judge or a jury or whoever determine what in fact happened. How do you put a value on damages here? Again, good question. Um, question is how much is his life worth at this point? How much has uh, his, his options, right, or his career endeavors been uh, affected Assuming the allegations are false here. Um, so, and that's a decision for the courts to make. But over, and ag- to- over and above the allegations being false, and in, sorry, sorry, Jordan, but I keep going back to the, the change in the, in the scenario right. of underage and such. I mean, can you still go after, can you still pursue a story uh, with the same intensity once the facts like that changes? And, and I think that's, it just appeared like every night they were doubling down on this, even though it's like, the story had less and less credibility with every passing day, especially realizing that these people were of age. Right. So, I mean, 
the question is, well, why are they doubling down, right? <laughs> we don't know that. We're not yeah. TV. Yeah. I mean, are they doubling down to prove or that, in fact, they knew what they were talking about? Yeah. And they weren't perhaps, uh, you know, sloppy? It, could that be the reason? I don't know. Um, or I guess my be- point is here, even if this is all true, and I know Patrick Brown's denying all of this, but even if it is true and the allegations are true, is there still a case and a story here? Is this still worth pursuing? So, okay, that, so that, that, is, that is up to the network, right? That's the network's decision yeah. at that point. Yeah. I mean, we don't tell the networks what yeah. to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, they cover what they want to cover, and that's, that, that's their choice, right? All we can talk about is, what's the liabilities and legal implications associated with that. But whether they cover it or not, that's their decision. And as to why they continue to cover it or, or why it's, it's been doubled down, as you put it, that's nothing only they know. Jordan Donich has been with us, criminal lawyer, Donich Law. Jordan, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've uh, certainly been uh, monitoring lots of what has happened uh, over the past week with uh, the trip to India with the Prime Minister and his family. Uh, Normally, when the Prime Minister goes to uh, other places, other countries, he's treated like a a rock star, given a a nice warm welcome and such. But uh, soon after arriving, the reports uh, were coming in from India that um, something just wasn't going right. To talk more about all of this, Raheel Raza is with us, Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, anti-racism activist, and interfaith discussion leader. Uh, It is a pleasure to have Raheel Raza back on the show. Raheel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again. We appreciate this. Thank you for having me. So, uh, as I mentioned in the preamble, normally uh, it's rock star status. What went terribly wrong here? What happened? Or did it really go wrong? Well, obviously, social media is, uh, you know, all over the place about the parakeet diplomacy and the colorful visit and, you know, about all the silliness involved with uh, with the costumes and the dancing. But, uh, you know, on a serious note, um, uh, state visits are exchanged, um, you know, to boost trade. Uh, you know, and they're aimed at strategizing for or against a common project and, you know, build friendly relations. And it doesn't seem that uh, this trip by a prime minister achieved any of that. In fact, uh, it uh, did exactly the opposite. And um, it's embarrassing. (laughs) How does this happen? I mean, this is a major trip. This isn't just a, you know, a quick jaunt from one province to another. What about an agenda? Wouldn't this have all been laid out ahead of time? Well, this is exactly what our point of concern is that, you know, who is advising our prime minister? He seems to be influenced heavily by the Khalistan movement, by, uh, you know, the supporters of the Khalistan movement and by Islamists. So we need to really look at, uh, you know, who's giving him the right advice. And, uh, you know, he should have had somebody uh, telling him uh, what to do and what to say. But uh, this was definitely not uh, done uh, very diplomatically. So it's just like uh, if the Indian prime minister came to Canada with his entourage and uh, said he was supporting the Quebec separatist movement. Uh, You know, how could he expect not to be snubbed? you, you don't go to, to a country and then, you know, rub it in their face about the people who are uh, involved in subversive activities. Why did so, the prime minister take this approach? Well, either he's very naive, uh, 
um, you know, it's very hard to say. I mean, he's an intelligent man. Uh, you would think that he would have done his homework, and it's not something that he made a mistake on. But as I said, he's probably being advised by the wrong people, and it's not just there. He's done it here as well. He has gone to gurdwaras and mosques where I would never ever, ever send my children. Uh, you know, these are uh, places that that are involved in uh, in politics. They are controversial. And as a prime minister of a country, it would be advisable for him to stay away from it. I mean, he doesn't have to say anything about it, but he should, you know, keep as far removed as possible from these controversial issues. But to go to India and then to get, uh, you know, be seen in photo ops with uh, people who are supporting the Khalistan movement, I mean, that is so gross. It's so undiplomatic and it's so embarrassing for me as a Canadian to I was just across the border uh, last week and everyone wanted to talk about you know what about your prime minister and you know why is he why are he and his family all dressed up in Indian clothes all the time and you know it's okay to wear, wear a costume to appreciate and respect the culture of a country but like this was over the top and you know it was like going overboard uh in his getting involved in 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 indians pol- india's politics is he trying to 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 ride both sides of the fence here is he trying to balance this or is he just misinformed i would say he's totally misinformed i mean how can you balance something like this yeah uh, i believe he's been advised wrong he's totally misinformed. And as I said, this is not the first time he's done it. He's done it with the Islamists here as well. He has gone to to the mosques that spout hate and had photo ops stand there. He's doing it now with the Khalistan movement. So he needs to really think about who is giving him this advice and what, uh, you know, what steps he needs to take for his for his own, um, uh, you know, for his, for his own credibility. Is someone trying to influence his views here? Like, I don't understand how this happens inside the prime minister's office. Well, the leaders of countries have advisors. They don't have time yep. to make all this, do mm-hmm. all the small details when trips like this happen. They have people who advise them. And obviously, there's somebody who's giving him this advice, which is totally off the bat and which is totally wrong in many cases. I mean, the world can see this is not something that, um, you know, I'm forming an opinion about. There has been such a huge backlash against uh, what he has done on this trip, and it doesn't make him popular at all, whereas, you know, India and Canada should be talking about forging strong relationships and talking about issues that matter to both of them and, you know, coming together on on uh, concerns. Uh, which are, you know, concerns of terrorism and radicalization. I mean, this is a common cause for all of us. And we need to be cognizant when we are meeting people and talking to them, you know, what this looks like to the rest of the world. So what was the purpose of this visit? And as I mentioned earlier, you'd think this agenda would all be hammered out ahead of time. It seemed once he landed, then things started to go to to, to unwind. Um, What was the purpose of this visit? Well, it's very hard to say. Right. You would think that the purpose of the visit would have been to strategize stronger ties. But if, you know, you go and rub something like this in in their face, how are you going to have stronger ties? And I hope that, uh, you know, um, Modi's reaction and the reaction on social media and the rest of the world has probably given him some food for thought. But, you know, I would like to say that he was being very naive. But as a prime minister of my country, I would say he doesn't have the luxury of being naive. Mm. He needs to be much stronger in the steps he takes because the world is watching. 
And, uh, you know, it's very good to be popular and it's very good to wear colorful socks and do, you know, all these wonderful <laughs> things. The costumes aside, uh, you know, the, the dancing and the costumes aside, the diplomatic strategic moves uh, are, are what the world watches. Could and, the prime uh, minister's office not have seen this coming? And I, and I, and I don't mean Rahil to keep hammering the same point here. It's just it just it just seems they got this horribly wrong right from day one. Yes, they did. I mean, I mean, what can I say? Really, yeah, yeah. Uh, this came as a and this certainly wasn't. And this certainly wasn't to appeal to Canadian Indians. No, no, <laughs> not in what, any way. You know, they're all sort of cringing and saying, "Oh my God!" You know, what what is he doing? So um, obviously, it didn't appeal to anybody because uh, you know you don't you don't do these things, and especially you don't do them as a leader of a country. This is what I'm saying as a prime minister of Canada. There's some protocol, uh, you know, these, these are diplomatic ties. They have to be handled very, very carefully. So, um, you know, it, it's something that he should have been able to think about. It's something that he should have, uh, you know, uh, done very carefully, but he didn't. So, as you're saying, I, it, it's hard to say, but I can only presume that there were people advising him and he did not uh, question the advice. And he jumped right into it. Uh, tell us about Jaspal Atwal and, and the relationship with the Prime Minister. Again, it's, you know, uh, it, it's, it's something that we know. It, it, he's controversial, and the Prime Minister should have kept him at arm's length, or any of these people who are uh, known uh, to be dangerous to our security and safety. And, you know, anyone who's working on a separatist movement, these are people who may want to reach out to him, but he should keep them at arm's length and certainly not have photo ops and dinner invitations out there. So it's um, uh, it's very troubling and, you know, it's of great concern. So we need to uh, really look and see where, what he's going to do about this. And I don't think he's made any statement uh, about who advised him on this, but we did definitely have to unravel who the advisors are and where is this coming from. I mean, as you're asking me, we are asking the same question. Where is this coming from? And mm. you need to really track where it's coming from and hope that he will make take better steps in the future. How did this trip's agenda change once it was obvious it wasn't going in the right direction? Did it end off on a positive note? Well, it ended off in, on a note where, you know, um, Modi sort of accepted and looked the other way. I think it and it ended off in just an acceptance that, okay, this is what it is. I mean, what are they going to do? They are not going to uh, publicly say that they're unhappy about what happened. Again, this is what strategic alliances, this is what diplomacy is all about. But I think, I mean, I'm sorry to put it this way, but he already had made a fool of himself. So, you know, uh, what else can you do? The, the deed was done. And this was happening day after day, and you're watching this, and you're thinking, please, you know, please, God, let him not be wearing the same costume again the next day. But, you know, it just went on and on. So, uh, you know, he's making himself popular with film stars. He's making himself popular with the masses, and he is. There is no doubt about the fact that the rest of the world looks upon Prime Minister Trudeau as a, as a rock star and, you know, as someone who's young and good-looking and, you know, they, they adore him. But if you think deeply, this was so embarrassing. Again, you can take this to a level where it can be uh, smart and diplomatic, and, you know, really sharp, or to a point where it can be embarrassing. So and we are embarrassed. I don't know if he's embarrassed or not, but we certainly are as Canadian citizens. 
How does this change the worldview of him, do you think? Do you, what do you think the PMO's law office has learned from this? I think what they should have learned is that, you know, you have to act your age and you can't act silly as a prime minister of a country and that you need to have some dignity. And you cannot uh, openly support uh, movements by going to that country and actually literally rubbing it in their face. It's, you know, if when he is in Canada, he does whatever he does as the Canadian prime minister. And of course, you know, it's an, a lot of appeasement of different groups. And, you know, uh, maybe he's naive about the, the dangers that lurk out there with, uh, you know, Islamists and radicals and terrorists. And we give him the benefit of the doubt and we say, OK, you know, he wants to appease everybody. But when he's going to another country representing Canada, which means you and me, then he needs to purport himself with a little more dignity. Uh, so that, you know, we can look and say, I don't think there is any other leader of the world who has uh, behaved in the way that he has. Uh, there certainly has been lots of talk uh, about the outfits. We were talking about this off air before we had our, our discussion, and, and that seems to be the flashpoint or, or something that certainly draws people's attention to all of this visit and such. Um, how overblown was that? Uh, give us, you know, f- from, from a well, Canadian perspective, how out of place was it? Well, the thing is that, you know, he's going to a country where there are millions of people, large populations that are starving, that don't have three meals a day, that don't have, uh, you know, good clothes to wear. And these are designer outfits that cost a lot of money. So, again, you know, a little bit of humbleness, a little bit of dignity would have gone a long way. You know, India is not a country where everybody wears designer clothes. And here you are. And, you know, these, uh, from what I've been reading, there's, a lot of money that's gone into having these outfits uh, being made by designers. And of course, they would love to do that. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is what film stars do. Uh, This is what showmen do. But he's not a film star and he's not a showman and he'd like to be one from the way he behaves, I gather. He needs to learn some Bollywood moves to begin with. So (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask you about that, but obviously I didn't have to. I thought, you know, I'm probably out of place to speak there, too. But, uh, you know, (laughs) it is what it is, I guess. It it is what it is. And, you know, one can even overlook all of this. So, you know, he likes to be a showman and he wears flashy clothes. That's okay. But it's this whole issue of, you know, Atwal and and this, uh, you know, uh, uh, supporting the people who are supporting a a separatist movement. As I said, it's very simple. I don't think our country would be happy or our people would be happy if any other uh, foreign diplomat came here and was supporting uh, the separatist movement and wanted to have pictures with uh, people who are supporting it. So it's just a question of being a little sensible, being a little responsible and realizing that, you know, Canada has its eyes on the world. And now here we are. Uh, we're the laughing stock of the whole world. Uh, I remember seeing him talk when he was addressing this, and he 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 talked about how Canada is a, a land of of different cultures and different opinions and such, and that is our strength. Uh, when, of course, talking about his his views on India, can you draw that comparison? Well, of course. I mean, um, if if he's talking about diversity, India is a country that actually lives, breeds. And, and and shows its diversity. You know, this has got a huge population, a very diverse. But can you population. deliver that speech as an excuse for separatism? No, I mean, of course not. Diversity and separatism are two entirely different things. I mean, you know, you can't use diversity as a plug to promote any of the, these ideas. Diversity exists organically. It's not something that has to be thrust down our throats. We don't have to dance in flamenco clothes to prove that there is diversity. I mean. 
it, this is this is the whole point that you know how much over the top does one go to uh, you know prove a point diversity exists you don't have to each one of us doesn't have to uh, speak other people's languages or wear other people's costume it's something that is organic uh but uh, you know the the idea of picking out people who are part of a separatist movement i mean that is beyond naive so um either he needs to change his advisors or he needs to study up and do some homework and understand before he leaves for a country what he's supposed to do where does this leave where does this trip leave indian canadian relations well, I don't think that it's going to harm Indian-Canadian relations because India is, you know, has leaders who are sensible enough to know that this is for their larger benefit. But it's, we have to wait and see, though. You know, this is something that I, I think we have to see what the fallout is going to be. And, uh, you know, it's too soon and too new for us to make uh, statements, but uh, we'll have to watch and see what happens. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's going to sever their relations, but it's certainly put them in a very delicate position, I would say. Uh, Rahil, we've had many sensitive conversations over the years, and, and you have said, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but sometimes Canadians can be a little naive with their political correctness and have to open their eyes to to the history and some of the, the realities that are going on in, in some of these countries. Do you feel that here with this misstep, that it's just... Absolutely. Of course, you know very well where I stand on political correctness. I think that, you know, there's a very fine line in being politically correct and naive, bordering uh, stupidity, excuse, I guess I said said the word, but, you know, uh, we can't let our naivety uh, close our eyes and our minds to the real dangers around us. You know, we're living in a a post-9-11 world. We're living in a world where there are subversive agendas right here in our country, and we have to be very cognizant of them. And for those of us who are the grassroots activists fighting on the ground for the future safety and security of our country, uh, it is very uh, much, it's very concerning when our leaders are not uh, sort of supporting the same kind of ideas. There's ideologies out there, there's agendas out there, and we've seen it and we know it. You know, just you don't have to take my word for it. So we need to be much more alert. Uh, You know, (laughs) we are standing on guard for this country. So let's be a little responsible. Let's be a little knowledgeable. Let's do some homework. Let's uh, get our facts straight before we start uh, having relationships with other countries. Uh, You know, every time I travel, I'm so proud to be a Canadian because the world really looks at Canada as a shining beacon, it is still the best country in the world. But we have issues and we need to talk about them. We need to be able to uh, empower the uh, Canadians to be able to speak out and uh, speak out against those things that are going wrong. This is not the same country I came to 30 years ago. You know, things have changed. And as a, as a citizen, and as a loyal citizen, I feel it my responsibility to speak out when I see something that is going downhill. And we have to, have to get over political correctness and talk about these issues. And you and I have done that many times. And I will continue to do that. Rahil Raza has been with us, Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, as well, anti-racism activist and interfaith discussion leader. Rahil, always a fascinating discussion. Thanks again for your time. So much appreciated. Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Olympics officially wrapped up for 2018. Did you watch? Did you get into it? Were you... Did you catch the fever? The spirit? 
How disappointed were you that there wasn't more NHL? There wasn't NHL? Does that make you watch or not watch? Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, heard right here weeknights. 900 CHML as well. Columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. He's uh, joining us on the air. Scott, thanks for taking the time. We always appreciate it. Anytime, Scott. So when you look back at this Olympics, uh, what stands out for you? What will you remember? You know, there's a few things. Um, One of them, and you and I chatted, I don't know, maybe three days into the Olympics, something like that. And we were commenting on the, it was kind of flat, at that time, it didn't seem like there was the usual buzz in Canada, even though we were doing well three or four days in, and we did very, very well. We set a new Canadian record for medals. I, I just, maybe you felt differently. I was away last week and was following from afar. Never got the sense that there was the same level of buzz or excitement or whatever. Can you get the same? in Vancouver and then in Sochi, Can you still get the same level of buzz, though, when you're floating around on a cruise ship? Really, Scott? Well... <laughs> <laughs> different kind of buzz. Um, <laughs> mostly, uh, you know what? It seemed that this to be mo- more political. Certainly, when we were chatting at the beginning, it was it was all politics. It was very little athletics at that point. But even when you when you watch the the games, when you watch the events, there were a ton of empty seats at, at almost everything. Well, that's because the Russians hacked it and uh, made it look like North Korea, and they couldn't. People couldn't get their no. tickets. No. Uh, You're not buying that. No, I think people probably could have got their tickets if they wanted. I was I was watching one event of the um, uh, what do they call it now? The ski cross or the whatever. We know when they're yeah. all racing together down the. That's hill an incredible crashing. sport to watch. That, see, that's my favorite thing now. Yeah, it's the cool. Olympics. I like it. I, in fact, I think next time four athletes or six athletes going at the same time is not nearly enough. Let's start them all at once. <laughs> Why don't we just have them on TV trays? Well, but, you know, let's have 10 at a time. We want more crashes, not less. Yeah. Uh, Although, boy, that Canadian... understand this. The Canadian, the Canadian woman that went down, though, boy, that was a Very hard sad. hit. Yes, oh, no, it, but look, it's... But I was watching that one, and you could see from the angle they had when they came over the last jump mm. the seat down at the bottom, and... There were not many people in those seats, and I'm mm. thinking if you can't get people to buy into this event, yeah, what what are you what's missing here? And then you read the reports from the people who were over there, and they say, yeah, this was a a flat Olympics that way. That again, Canada did exceptionally well in so many things, and that's terrific. But there just wasn't the. I just never got the sense that people had really decided that they were fully emotionally engaged into this thing. Uh, you know, the Olympics are something you just don't decide. Hey, let's pack the kids in the car and go. This is planned well in advance. Do you think the North Korean threat had something to do with that? People going, Could you know be. what? I just don't want to go to that part of the world right now. Could be, although it's always the case that the home country is expected and, and sort of responsible or does inevitably yeah. fill the seats. I mean, in, in Vancouver, there were lots of people from around the world, but yeah. there were but most of those seats were filled by Canadians. Yeah. And I think the bigger issue may have been the fact that it was hours away from Seoul, which is the main population base. So, it, you know, it's not just a case of getting tickets. It's for them getting there maybe a three-hour drive each direction if you're coming from seoul and do i want to do that then to go out there and and it was a really cold olympics do i want to stand outside for hours and freeze to death so there were a lot of things going on 
Do you think South Koreans were ticked off at North Korean's uh, uh, participation in it, so therefore decided to stay home? But that's you no. Know. I don't think there was. A, I think they were ticked off. Yeah. But I don't think that that led to some sort of boycott or blockade or something like that. Of tickets. I, I say I think there were a number of reasons. It just never really caught. But but again, there there are things in in the Winter Olympics uh, and in these ones as well. There there are always stories. There's always terrific Canadian stories and. You know, it's it is an oddity, I think. It's, and some people who are real figure skating aficionados will take issue with this. But it's an oddity when an ice dancing pair becomes the story of the Olympics for Canada. And and you know, again, that can be seen as insulting. It's not traditional. Is that what happens when there's no NHL? Well, yes. Yep, yeah. There's no. We we don't win gold in either hockey. Yeah. And our and our curlers, except for the mixed doubles, don't win. And the darlings of the Olympics, as a result, for Canada anyway, become Virtue and Moyer. I, I can't remember when there's been a nice dancing team that has been the story of the games, but that's who really became the face of these Olympics. Uh, your thought on the NHL uh, not being in the games, uh, what really throws all of this off is a period of transition. Will they come back? Um, and really, if they do, doesn't there have to be some sort of agreement that they have to stay? Because it just seems when you go in and out of a program like this, it's going to take years to get back into it. You know, a couple things about that. First of all, it's a negotiation, and it, this was a negotiation that didn't lead anywhere because the IIHF, the International Ice Hockey Federation, wanted the NHL there. The Olympic people certainly wanted the NHL there, but the NHL people say, okay, yeah, but we have to screw up our schedule. We have to run the risk of our players being hurt. We have all this other stuff. They come back and the best players are exhausted from this tournament now. So what are you giving us? And they wouldn't give them much. I think now, though, the NHL, after this tournament, the NHL has all the, all the leverage. Cards, yeah, all yeah. the leverage. Yeah. Because this was, so is this about dough? Is this about just holding out for yes, more compensation? Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely it is. And and there was one other part about this, and that is with the times of the games, yeah. even if the NHL wasn't going to get the money, if this had been in an Eastern time zone where they look and say, well, look at this, we could actually really expose these players in this level of hockey. But they weren't going to be able to do that. So there was really, they weren't getting anything they wanted. I'll tell you an interesting story, though, that I thought was fascinating and also a little bit weird. Pavel Datsuk, who played for years with the Detroit Red Wings, and has now retired, and he's playing over in Russia. He played for Russia in this, and he, they obviously won the gold medal. And when he was with Detroit, I think he won three or four cups, I can't remember how many, he said that this gold medal at these Olympics was more valuable and more meaningful to him than any of the Stanley Cups that he won. And I'm looking at this thinking, you, you do realize that the people you beat in these Olympics yeah. don't matter. Like nobody outside of Russia and Germany, who did very well, Nobody outside those two countries are looking going, wow, this shows that you're the best hockey country in the world. All everyone else is looking at saying, yeah, if the real players were there, you guys don't even probably make the quarterfinals. Yeah. But he's, he's taking this, that this was the greatest thing that ever happened to him, and I, I, it's a hard sell for anyone outside Russia, I would say. But then again, there's the big question. Is the Olympics about amateur athletics, or is it about professional and the best in the world? Well, because I think it, used to, it used to always be about amateur athletics. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And I think you can make a case that the people who benefited, that there were benefits of the NHL players not being there. And the people who benefited are the folks who otherwise would have had no attention because so much of the air in the room is swallowed up by the NHL coverage. 
And so by not having Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid and on and on and on there, there were probably a lot of other athletes who got a lot more attention that otherwise would have been focused elsewhere. Well, and it's no different than the NBA playing in the Summer yeah, Olympics. I mean, it's 100%. is this fair? Is it? I mean, I guess it's the best and the best. But gee whiz, we're talking about amateurs versus millionaires. So, imagine what happens, Scott. In the you know, this won't ever happen, but imagine the Summer Olympics if the soccer tournament was broadened to now be essentially a World Cup. There you go. There's another around example. the world where soccer is the thing in so many countries in the world there would be no other Olympic sport that would matter. It would entirely be about men's soccer, and everything else would be swallowed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, NHL and NBA, common denominators here? Why one in, one out? Is, is there a case of just doing a template here for both? Uh, you mean... Like, why is, one in, why is one in, one, why is one out? I mean, wouldn't the same sort of things apply? I mean, either you're in or you're out. Well, again, I mean, look at uh, where the Olympics have been and where they're going. I mean, we're going to have uh, the NBA situation is a little bit different. Cause the but the destination Olympics, can't determine whether the team's in or out. And again, no, because the, it screws up everybody's program. Either, you get, no, either but, you're in for the long term or you're not. But the Summer Olympics happen off-season yeah, for the NBA. Yeah, so yeah. it doesn't have to screw up your schedule or inter, in, interfere with that. So mm-hmm. you can have your players go regardless of where it is. And it doesn't really affect anything. I've never understood, honestly, Scott, why the uh, ba- why basketball is a summer Olympic sport because it's a winter sport. Whether you, I mean, that, it, it's, it's indoor, I guess. Yeah, you throw basket. I mean, you play basketball in the winter. Yeah, you should have it as a winter Olympic sport. It's you know, is it is it different? You can't from, play it outside in the winter, though. Well, but you don't curl outside in the winter anymore. You don't play hockey outside. Well, we do sometimes. Um, but but it, no, there's, there's a and here's you know it goes to a number of things though. The Summer Olympics are so massive. The Summer yeah. Olympics are so enormous now that they 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 dwarf the Winter Olympics and the Winter Olympics now are and and both Olympics are actually adding more and more events. It would seem to, it would make sense to me to move some of these other summer Olympic sports into the winter teams. Move volleyball, move basketball, move a few other things that you can do. In table the tennis! Why not? What's Why table not? tennis doing at the Summer Olympics? I'm, the point is, you could. There are winter sports that you could easily move in there and make them part of the Winter Olympics and equal it out a little bit. But they're not going to do that, and that's why the Summer Olympics remain such a massive, massive, massive thing. Many, many times bigger than the Winter Games. So will Gary Bettman get his big fat check? Will they be in the next Olympics? Uh, I would expect so. And Because, uh, you know, after we saw the picture, and God bless the, you know, the men's team getting the bronze and such, but it looked like a beer league. Oh, yeah, well. Most of the time when you're looking at pictures of Olympians, you're seeing young people. I'm seeing yeah. bald guys with beards. Yeah, I, I suspect that after this that they will figure out some way. Because other than the Russian team and the German team, and that's um, you know a few dozen guys, who was really happy with this? The fans didn't love it. Um, I, not that I heard, anyway. I didn't hear too many people. In fact, when the, when the men's tournament started, I, I had people that I was talking to were saying, really, that, sorry, that's on today? They're starting today? Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think back to the last few when it was the national teams with all the best players, you knew when they were practicing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was so much coverage of it. And now we didn't even know when the games were starting and when they were playing. I think that the NHL, as I say, holds so much leverage. I can't see them not being in the next Olympics. And plus, 
the players all want to be there. Yeah, yeah. This wasn't this wasn't a player's decision. This yeah. was out of their hands. All the guys want to be there. Uh, so obviously, from a medal standpoint, a, a, a good uh, a good haul for the Canadian team. Uh, that being said, disappointments in curling and women's hockey. How do you explain that? Uh, okay, women's hockey. First of all, and this is not just women's hockey. This is in general. I would propose, after all these years now, that Canada refuse to participate in any more international hockey matches or events that end with a shootout. Enough of the mm. stupid shootout. Can- mm. Canadians can't apparently do the shootout and it's not a proper way to finish a game and every canadian i think probably would agree and say enough with the stupid shootouts play till you got a winner that's that's the way hockey is supposed to be mm-hmm. as for the curling i don't know you know we won constantly we've won since it was brought back in you end up with a, a year when apparently all the canadian teams forget how to curl for a couple of weeks well you know I have no doubt that when the next Olympics roll around, that Canada will win both the men's and women's again because we generally do. We are, you know, we could have, when you go to the Briar, we could have probably sent our eight top teams, any one of them, mm. and they probably would have been competitive, at least as competitive as the Canadians who were there and many years would have won at any one of those eight provinces. So I don't think we have, or have too much to worry about. It was just an off year. Uh, what do you think the chances are? There's chatter that uh, Calgary wants to refurb uh, some of their uh, facilities and, and host it again, uh, as opposed to, of course, tearing it all down and starting over again, which they seem to do in a lot of countries. What do you think their chances are? I, You know, here's the thing. I, I think the chances, A, are really good, and I think the idea is fantastic and is long Me too. overdue. Why do you have to build... Remember, Sochi, Sochi costs... 50, roughly $50 billion, with a B, $50 billion to put on those Olympics. Why do you have to do that? If you've got places that already have their facilities in place and just, as you say, need a little refurbishment, then it'll cost a billion or two, uh, which is not, you know, obviously chunk change, maybe even not that much, I don't know. But if you, can put, if you have these things already in place and if you can do it without having to gouge the the taxpayers like it has been lately for the olympics i mean rio nearly bankrupted the entire country of brazil uh, i think you should do it i think we should see this be done all over the place i'd like to see them on a rotation where you get say four cities for the summer olympics and we tell you yeah we're coming back in 20 years so you better keep your facilities hmm. ready because we're going to be back here is hosting reason, is ho- I actually think they have a good chance. I think that the Olympics, there's not a lot of countries right now that are wanting to spend that much. So I don't get it. Uh, that's my next question because I remember when Toronto was like falling all over itself trying to put a bid together and oh my goodness, lost another one. And oh, is this the big prize that it always has been or thought to be? I mean, is it big as it once was, say, 20, 30 years ago? If you have the facilities, I think it would be. If you have the, the ability to not spend every dime that your city or your province or your country has, and you can put on the Olympics, I think it'll be terrific. And and look at something else, and I don't have the number in front of me, but there was a story that pointed out the number of, I think it was 22 of the 29 medals that Canadians won were from athletes that had grown up using the Calgary or Whistler facilities. Absolutely. So the, so the Olympic facilities that become the legacy project yep. of these of the games when you hold them lead to if you keep them up because we've seen lots of places where they let the facilities just fall apart athens was like that rio has been like that uh, sarajevo was like that where they just fall apart but if you keep them 
and you use them and you allow your future athletes to train on them, they can actually be the people who later on down win those medals for you. I, if Calgary can, if Calgary shows interest and they're willing to spend some, and they will require some money, yeah. I think absolutely they get those Olympics. Well, yeah, I was fortunate enough to be there from 86 through 89, and the great thing about Canada Olympic Park is it's right on the edge of town. Well, now I'm sure it's completely engulfed by the town, but the facilities are right there for everyone to use. And, and as you said, there's your legacy. 100%. 100%. And I mean... You can point to, and it's not very popular all the time. I mean, Tim Hortons Field is a legacy project uh, because we got that for the Pan Am Games. You mm-hmm. look around at a bunch of these places, and if they are properly handled, and if you have people in place that can properly look after them, these things can become very useful and very important to your community. If you have the people, and if you have the means, and if you have the desire to keep them going. Uh, a lot of Hamilton connection, obviously, at uh, this year's Olympics, but even cooler that the Arkells managed to stop by Canada House. Yeah, wasn't that fun? Um, yeah. Uh, and I think, as far as I understand it, this was kind of a surprise that it was a, yeah. an online thing, some chatter going back and forth, and finally someone said, you guys really want to come? And away they went. So, um, no, that's, that's there was a lot of, well, not a lot. There was a number. We've had more athletes before. I think we had eight this time three in bobsleigh, um, and honestly should have won a medal there. I feel really badly for Jesse Lumsden because his, you know, there's two parts to bobsleigh. There's the push, the start, and then there's the driving. And their mm. push, and that's what he does, was the best in the world. They, they, they had the fastest starts in the entire world, and they were in position to possibly win a medal. And, you know, they had a few glitches in the driving, which was unusual. Uh, and I feel terrible for... Sarah Nurse and Renata Fast yeah. and, uh, and Laura Fortino with the women's hockey. But you know what? It's, uh, this is why you play sports, because you don't know the outcome. If you knew the outcome, it wouldn't be all that much fun to watch. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, and of course, sports columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Uh, Want to plug the show tonight? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as we there find is, one. There is a show tonight from 6 till 8. We will be talking about the Olympics. Uh, there will also be a bunch of other stuff. But coming back from vacation, I, you know what we're going to talk about a little, Scott? And you, I know, there was a time when flying and traveling mm. was glamorous. Yeah. Let me assure you, when you sit next to Sneezy Sam yeah. with his sniffling runny nose yeah. for a two-hour delay on the tarmac, <laughs> the glamour of flying, gone. <laughs> oh, man, it's a bit of a drag when you come back, more stressed than when you left, isn't it? <laughs> 31 hours to get back from Fort Lauderdale oh to Hamilton. 31 hours? It's a long story. Oh, my goodness. And you'll hear it tonight on the Scott Radley Show. Thank you, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.